always a blessing to be here. And uh, it's kind of fun to think back. It was uh, five years ago last month that I stood up here and said that uh, I was taking a position at Masters University uh, full-time. I had been teaching there as an adjunct uh, for a couple of years, but they had hired me on full-time, and so I was moving and transitioning from ministry here to then just teaching college students. Uh, and uh, so it's kind of fun to come back almost uh, five years and really have successfully finished up the PhD program minus a couple odds and ends that need to be done and be with you. And there's many here that I I don't know. So that's always fun. Um, You know, time brings change. And so uh, if I don't don't know you or haven't met you, I look forward to to meeting you. This place will always have a special spot for me, uh, the people here. And just uh, I love what the Lord continues to do in spite of the challenges that um, all churches, I think, have faced over these last few years. But you guys uh, particularly have, have uh, been going through it. And so I know that, um, you know, really every Sunday um, there are a lot of people here that make this happen. And so I just want to thank um, thank them for continually being faithful all these years. Um, and so just... Uh, again, thankful for this time. Would uh, encourage you to open up your Bibles to Isaiah 53. That's where we're going to start. Isaiah 53, and I I get to uh, to preach on whatever I want, and so that's always great. <laughs> and uh, so when when Matt asked me to preach, he's like, "Hey, can you can you fill in the pulpit?" I said, "Oh, well, it has to be after March 30th because." Um, Really, pretty much life has been on hold until the PhD stuff uh, gets accomplished. Uh, because I was also part of the LSB translation team. Um, director of IBEX was placed in my lap in November um, and, uh, and trying to finish the PhD. And, and so it was like, yeah, I can't, I just don't have any bandwidth for that. And, and so then Matt said, uh, hey, how about Easter? And, and so I was thinking... Uh, you, you don't have anybody better for Easter? Uh, sure. Like, I would love to, to, to preach on Easter. And, and so as I started thinking through it, um, I continually kept coming to a particular passage. And partly because every spring I teach Romans. And Romans is one of my favorite New Testament books. Um, and so uh, I'm in Romans every spring. And uh, so some of what I'm going to teach you, I'm actually going to be teaching um, next week to my students, which is kind of fun. Um, and so as we kind of prepare this passage in particular, where we're, where we're going and where, where we will be, is really, I think, life-changing. And we'll talk about it in a minute, but um, before we begin, I just want to say that my prayer for you and for me is that Resurrection Sunday and the impact of Christ rising again, and the fact that we do not serve a dead Savior, but one who is alive and will return, my prayer is that that is an everyday celebration and not relegated to once a year. And so that's the kind of the thrust of where we're headed. So pray with me, if you will. Lord, we come before you and I'm just so thankful for what 
you have accomplished through the person and work of our Savior. Lord, we thank you for Christ and for all that he has done, is doing, and will do. Father, as we look at the death, burial, and resurrection, Lord, help us to be reminded of the the impact of that in terms of our salvation, how that is the anchor of our hope, and at the same time, Lord, that it has day-to-day ramifications. So, Lord, as we look at that and as we are reminded, I pray that you would strengthen our hearts. Lord, if you have, by your sovereign hand, brought any who do not know you, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them, that you would do a work in their heart. And Lord, this is only possible because of your son, and so we praise his name. It's through Christ we pray, amen. Um, You know, the world celebrates Easter's with uh, a fascinating, celebrate, yes, I said Easter's, uh, a fascinating way of doing it. And uh, when I was a kid, I, I could not wait to color Easter eggs. I don't know why that was such a big deal. And, and I never really asked my mom, biologically, how does a bunny lay an egg? I just accepted it. And so um, you, you, you do the, these coloring of eggs and then you, and my mom would go and hide them around the trailer park, which really wasn't huge. And, and so I'd go out uh, and, and find all the little eggs and be super excited that I found all the eggs. And then what do you do with them after that? Do you eat them? Okay. But then the real big prize was the Easter basket with uh, the chocolate bunnies. And, uh, and then something that I've never still to this day have figured out, um, the fascination with peeps. Um, I just, I, I, see, some people just love it and they're offended that I've uh, mocked their uh, favorite uh, Easter candy. But I believe that should we have to go through a nuclear holocaust that will be our food for the rest of our time. And, and so as you start to kind of think through just Easter celebration and the way that really the world, and especially in America, the way that we celebrate it, it's typically, you know, family time and an emphasis on getting together and food and candy and chocolate bunnies. But we also know as believers that there's a, a much greater point to this holiday. And as we start to think through, we, we really come to the, the celebration and the reminder of the core of the gospel that God, very God, the second member of the Trinity, put on flesh, dwelt among us, went to a cross, was buried in a rich man's tomb, rose again, and ascended to the right hand of God. And it is in that that we celebrate because it's in that that we have our salvation. It is only in him and through him. And so the the fact that we celebrate the resurrection, I think is essential and it's important because we look at not only our salvation, but the resurrection reminds us that he will come again. He will return. We do that every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's not just his death. It's his resurrection and return and that he will be king and rule 
this broken world. And, and I don't know about you, but since COVID, everything has gone crazy and continues to go crazy and continues to get crazier. And in large part, that should make us long for the return of our king. And, and so we have, I, I think, at the very essence of Easter is the, this resurrection, the resurrection Sunday celebration, if you will, at the heart of that is the fact that we have a hope, right? And we celebrate that hope. All of our songs have been geared either towards the, the salvation that we have or the hope that we will have in the future. In fact, you can kind of put it this way. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul will say in verse 3, that I've delivered to you of first importance that Christ died, was buried, was raised again according to Scripture. And then he further talks and he says, look, if we deny the resurrection, so to speak, if, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sin. And so the resurrection is connected to our salvation. And it's also connected to something that we have future that death is swallowed up in victory, according to 1 Corinthians 15. Same passage. And, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It's defeated. We have a future resurrection that the grave could not keep him. And I think the most um, visually stimulating part of a very graphic movie, The Passion of Christ, in which Christ and all the glory, gory, I should say, the gory uh, suffering of Christ was on display in that movie. But I think the most um, vivid and most graphic point of that whole thing is as soon as Christ walked out, he crushed the head of the serpent. He's defeated death, Satan, and sin. But oftentimes what's overlooked and really where, where I'm headed today is a lack of connection, connecting the resurrection to the here and now, to the day to day. It's not just something in the past. And it's not just something in the future. It actually has practical ramifications living in light of the resurrection. The title is newness of life. It comes from Romans 6. One of my favorite passages in Romans that deals with, with this fact that we have been united to Christ. We are baptized in his death, raised in his resurrection to walk in newness of life. That the resurrection actually impacts your day to day. And so my hope and prayer is that instead of just a year, yearly celebration, which is good and important, that it is a day to day vivid reminder that not only do you have salvation and not only will you be 100% fully glorified in the future, raised with Christ, that day to day we live in light of what Christ has done. So with that said, I think one of the most uh, impactful passages here, I brought my PowerPoints, in case for those who remember Romans 4:25 says this, he who is delivered over on account of our transgression and was raised on account of our justification. That kind of is a twofold part, right? On account of, on our behalf, because of our transgression and also to justify us. And then he moves in chapter 6 and he says this, we were buried with him through baptism into death 
so that as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. If we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And here's the kind of the, the thrust as we get ready to go to Isaiah 53, and, and that's this. Theology matters. It's really disheartening and heartbreaking, actually, to see sloppy theologians and sloppy theology in the world today. Because that actually impacts how you live. What you believe, what you think, what you know impacts what you do. And so I'm going to take us back to actually what these verses expound upon. And that is the most vivid graphic depiction of the suffering, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Isaiah 53. And... Here's the hope. We're gonna, then we're going to go to Romans 6. Matt told me I had till 3, so, um, you know, we'll, we'll give it a whirl. And, uh, and so, um, here's, here's the thing. My hope is that you're reminded about the theological realities that Christ has accomplished so that it changes the way you live, even now. Isaiah 53. I love Isaiah 53, right? We all should. It's pretty amazing. It's the most descriptive Old Testament passage of the person and work of Christ. I mean, it details some amazing things. Think about it this way. It is a prophecy given almost 800 years before the fact. Think about that for a moment. 800 years. Um, Isaiah is roughly 740-ish B.C. in his uh, ministry. Christ will die, be buried, raised again, roughly around 33 A.D. Almost 800 years prior, Isaiah prophesies all these things about Christ. It's amazing when you look at the detail. But I want to... To point this out to you first, it's a prophecy for the future from Isaiah's position, right? Isaiah looking to the future. But Isaiah 53 starts out in the past tense. Notice verse 1, who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You continue to go through verses 1 all the way down until you get to verse 10, it is all in the past tense. Meaning, what this actually is, and we don't have time to get into the nitty-gritty and the details of Isaiah 53, because Isaiah 53 actually starts in Isaiah 52, verse 13, that deals with the, the servant, high and exalted, and, uh, and sprinkling the nations, and all kinds of theology that's there, but we're just going to focus in on 53. But it's past tense, and... It's from the concept of Israel as a nation looking back and recognizing that they have rejected their Messiah. So if that's confusing, think about it this way. Isaiah, 800 years prior, looking to what Christ will accomplish in 33 AD, but also going past that to the nation of Israel in the future, looking back and 
recognizing, oh snap, we missed our Messiah. That's the context of Isaiah 53. So the first thing is, uh, as we start to look at, is this, the rejection of the Messiah in chapter 53, 1 through 3. He says this, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That actually connects you back to Isaiah 52. If you look at Isaiah 52, verse 7, he says this, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces, what? You can talk to me. It's okay. Peace. I actually prefer interaction. Some of you will never talk to me, but that's okay. <laughs> who announces peace and brings good news of happiness? Who announces salvation? It's about blessed is the one who brings the message of salvation. 53 verse 1 says, who's believed it? The idea is, not many. The idea is, They've rejected the message. It assumes a negative response. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then what you have in the next portion, verses 2 and 3, is this, the rejected Messiah. And notice, it's fascinating, these details that he, that he does. He, meaning the Messiah, grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. And think about it this way. Um, this Messiah, he wasn't much to consider when he showed up. He wasn't what everybody anticipated the king of kings to be like. And so Isaiah marks it out in poetic language that says he was like a, a, little, a little twig that sprang up out of dry, parched Ground. You don't really anticipate much coming out of that. Instead of a giant oak by the river, it's this little twig root in parched land. The next portion, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Our American version of hipster Jesus is not accurate. He, he's not some overtly handsome, overtly kingly, overtly externally acknowledged Messiah. In fact, they've done some, uh, some, some studies of what Jesus might have looked like. And, and they, I mean, it shows up every time on, uh, on different feeds that, that I follow of what Jesus would look like since he's Jewish. And you look at that and then you, you look at the pictures that some of our seasoned saints have in their homes. Like I remember my grandma, she had a picture of Jesus praying in the garden. And it's got, you know, this, this light on him. And you might even recognize the, the, the painting. And Jesus is praying in the garden. He's looking up. And, and he's, uh, you know, he's, he's a pretty man <laughs> with, uh, with nice, long, flowing hair and He didn't look the part. It was very similar, if you think about it, um, to a descendant of his, David. He wasn't tall like Saul, head and shoulders above the rest. 
He was just this ruddy little boy who could kill lions and bears and tigers, oh my. But no stately form that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Look at verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I, I, I do want to point your attention to that. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Why did Israel reject their Messiah? And like the one from whom men hide their face. Why did Israel reject their Messiah? And he was despised and we did not esteem him. Why did they reject their Messiah? In part, not in total, but in part, a crucified Messiah was a contradiction. The Messiah in the Old Testament was to come and to rule with a rod of iron and to reign and bring a kingdom. And yet this one, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, they rejected him in large part because he was acquainted with suffering. Still to this day, the Messiah is one who will have victory. And lest you be misunderstanding me, the Messiah will rule with the rod of iron. The Messiah will come. The Messiah will reign. He will usher in his kingdom. But first, he came as a suffering lamb and he will come as the divine warrior king. But Israel missed it because they were looking for something different. They've rejected the message. They've rejected their Messiah. The next portion, the suffering of the Messiah. This one gets really interesting. And I want to point out something. Starting in verse 4, uh, what you have is the substitutionary death of Christ. And notice, and, and I'm going to make a comment. It might offend one or two. That's okay, but our world is confused as it comes to pronouns. <laughs> what pronouns should we use? The ones given. And why is that important? Well, you know, okay, we could talk about all kinds of social issues and things of the world, but it's important here. Pay attention to the pronouns here. Surely are what? Griefs. You notice that word? Where's that from? The verse above. Surely our griefs, he himself, bore. We didn't bear our griefs. Our sorrows, notice it's the inverse of verse 3, our sorrows he carried. The one, the man of sorrows, the one acquainted with griefs, bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. The, the concept of to bear something in verse 4, that term is connected all the way back to Leviticus that deals with the goat that bears the iniquity that takes the sin out of the camp. In other words, Jesus is connected to atonement. Our griefs he bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted but he was pierced through. I, I want to point your attention to just a couple terms that really deal with death. He was pierced through, wounded to the point of death through our transgressions. He was crushed for our, 
for our iniquities. That same word is what Paul, I'm sorry, what David will use in Isaiah 51, where it talks about the, the emotional weight of sin has crushed him, feeling as if his bones have been crushed. And it's fascinating when you think of David in his sin with Bathsheba in, a, in Psalm 51, likening his sin to being crushed. And yet this one, his descendant, the Messiah, will bear that crushing Crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being. It's actually, the literal term is peace. It's the punishment for our peace. Think about that for a minute. The punishment for our peace. I mean, this is the gospel message, is it not? That our sin cannot be paid for by us. That our righteousness is nowhere to be found. That Romans 1 through 3 paints a pretty graphic picture of being condemned under God's wrath. In fact, verse chapter 2, verse 5 deals with this issue of that we're storing up God's wrath for the day of judgment. That we are sinners and we've been impacted by sin. No, there's none righteous, not even one. All have turned aside. And what you have in Isaiah 53 is the fact that our sin has been placed on him and his substitutionary death. He is that substitute for us. And then you have his sinless death. Jumped ahead a little bit, but verse 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Again, substitutionary death. And then his sinless death, verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. He did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter. Again, another term for death. And like a sheep that is silent before its shears. And you look at verse 9, at the very end, he says, because he has done no violence and there was no deceit found in his mouth. Peter will talk about this and quote, actually, Isaiah 53, in dealing with the way Christ suffered as a sinless sacrifice. While being threatened, he uttered no threats. He was oppressed, verse 7, and afflicted, points to his trial. Verse 8, he was oppressed in judgment. He was, uh, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was cut off. The term cut off is, is not like the way we use it, right? We've, somebody cuts us off in traffic. We get upset. Cut off literally is used in the Old Testament of death. He was cut off from the land of the living. Again, all of this is pointing to death, not just kind of a, a little bit of suffering, a little bit of uh, difficulty, a little bit of affliction, death, for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men. Josephus tells us, and he's a historian in the first century, Josephus tells us that uh, typically what would happen during crucifixion. And so he gives a graphic portrayal and, and we have a good understanding uh, from several sources of the time of what crucifixion really uh, entailed. And it was horrific. But at the end, when criminals, and sometimes Rome would crucify a thousand at a time, 
when criminals were crucified, those who were insurrectionists, those who had risen up against the empire, those who were crucified as kind of a statement to, hey, uh, if you continue to, to try to rebel, you will end up like these. Um, all those bodies were gathered and put into mass graves in the first century. What's Isaiah saying? His grave was assigned with wicked men. This is where Christ would have just been tossed in his body. It had Rome just traditionally followed the course of action. But notice what Isaiah says, 800 years prior, yet he himself was with a rich man in his death. Joseph, the rich man. That's the tomb that Jesus was placed in. Why? Because he had done no violence, nor was there deceit in his mouth. And so as you start to kind of think through um, Isaiah 53, again, past tense, Israel realizing they've rejected their Messiah. Continuing. The exaltation of the Messiah. Verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Again, notice that this historical event did not catch God by surprise. God like wasn't, you know, busy doing something over here and all of a sudden goes, oh snap, they just killed my son. Or at the trial, like ah, I got to figure out a way to kind of figure this out. No, this was all divinely led. Back to chapter 53, verse 6. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Verse 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Why? Well, one of the things that you start to see here is this, is that his sacrifice is defined pretty specifically. If he would render himself as a guilt offering. Okay, I don't know about you. You read that and you're like, great, guilt offering. It's awesome. Most of you probably have not spent a lot of time in Leviticus. And the way I know that is if I was to go to your Bible, the pages might be stuck together. <laughs> um, maybe if you write in your Bible, a lot of your notes are in the New Testament and if they're in the Old Testament, it might be in some certain passages. But Leviticus, that's, that's usually, that's like metaphorically one of the flyover states in the Bible. <laughs> just kind of, you. it's a lot of things that you're just looking at like, ah, okay, I believe it, let's go. Um, but if you actually spent some time in Leviticus, you would be overwhelmed with all of the applicational insights and how actually Leviticus sets the trajectory for a lot of what happens in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament and, and a lot of the connections that you miss because uh, we, we just look at Leviticus as being too hard to understand. And a lot of that deals with sacrifices and the different types of sacrifices. And so you have a burnt offering, you have a, a peace offering, you have a, um, a grain offering, a sin offering, and a guilt offering. And you also have the Day of Atonement in which you have different goats uh, that are killed. Uh, one's killed and then one's uh, taken out. It's kind of represent in some ways like 
um, the fact that sin is covered with the one goat and then the other goat, the sin is removed from the camp. And so it kind of does a dual aspect of um, the the theological depth of what Christ's sacrifice is. And, and so you have all these different sacrifices that in some way or another do connect to Christ. But here Isaiah says the guilt offering. And like, ah, what is that? What's that about? As you start to kind of think through the guilt offering, let me just give you the cliff notes uh, and then you can go check me later. Leviticus 5. And Again, you have five key sacrifices and then you have the Day of Atonement sacrificial system, but five key sacrifices, burnt offering in which the sacrifice was completely burnt, signifying someone's whole, wholly devoted, complete offering of themselves to God by visual representation of a burnt offering. So when you go to like Romans 12 and you see like... Um, you know, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Paul's actually drawing off of the burnt offering um, symbolism there. You have the grain offering, which is, you know, out of your abundance, you were to give some of your grain. The peace offering in which uh, you are celebrating that you have peace with God and that you actually, this is the only offering that you get to partake as a worshiper with the meal. I mean, it's pretty fascinating what happens there. A sin offering is um, for kind of, cleansing and things like that. And then when you get to the guilt offering, um, this is the last one, and, and this one um, is a rare offering, but it happens. And that is, if you were, uh, if you defrauded God or another person, this is the offering that you would give. And not just any and every sin, it had to deal with you defrauding in some sense, or um, in essence, kind of like, uh, taking something that's not yours uh, and, and maybe even, um, yeah, for instance, if Matt Davis had five little lambs um, and they wandered over to my yard and I just uh, rebranded them because, you know, finders keepers, that's in the Bible, right? And, uh, and then it came to light that I took Matty D's lambs and uh, over his nice brand, I put... Dr. J, these are my lambs, um, and it got found out, not only would I have to pay restitution of those five lambs, but I, had to add, I would have to add 20% to that. In essence, if, if you defrauded not just a person, but in particular, Leviticus 5 deals with if you defraud God, that which is rightfully his, sometimes maybe uh, things that you would bring to offer him, um, tithe or a bunch of other things, if you treated his things as unholy, those kinds of things. It really points to not just how we deal with each other, but how we deal with God. And if you defraud God, then you had to bring what you defrauded God, what you held back, and you had to add 20%. Taking that concept, what you start to see in Isaiah 53 is a more nuanced understanding of what this offering is. And, and it's this, is that Jesus paid the debt of all and some more than what was required because of who he is. That's the sacrificial, sinless, substitutionary death. 
if he would render himself as a guilt offering. And then you see a, a switch. This is where we finally, I mean, I, I'm a nerd, so I'm going to point different terms out to you and tenses and things like that. But this is where you finally see the passage move to future tense. It's all been past tense up until this time. Chapter uh, 53, verse 10, he will see his offspring, his seed. That's not saying Jesus is going to have physical little babies. What it means is that he is going to see his descendants. Um, theologically, you look at this way in Galatians 3, those who are in Christ are part of Abraham's seed, offspring. You could put it even bigger and understand it this way. We are sons and daughters because of the son's work. We are children. And so what the writer is noting, Isaiah in particular, is that there is a future for this one who has been cut off from the land of the living. The next line, he says this, he will prolong his days. The one who has been led to slaughter, the one who has been pierced through, the one who has been cut off from the land of living, the one who is assigned a rich man in his death, in his grave, the one who has been crushed, the one who rendered himself as a guilt offering, will see his days, prolonged days. And the Lord will prosper him. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. What is he talking about? He's talking about his future glory in particular. He's talking about the resurrection. Even though he doesn't use the term resurrection, it's there by implication. The one who has died will be exalted. And then last, again, I'm just kind of running through here because I want to get to the implications of these theological realities are forgiveness and justification. He says it in verse 11. There's a play on words. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. The righteous one will make the many righteous. The righteous one will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and I will divide the treasure with the strong, because he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He himself bore the sins of many. These are going to be terms and phrases used in the Gospels. You see it in Matthew 26, where he's in, Jesus is dealing with communion, and he talks about bearing the sin of many. Matthew 10, I'm sorry, Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for the many. Again, these are all kind of interconnected. What does that mean? It's through the death, the suffering, death, burial, and resurrection that our sins are forgiven, that we are justified, and it's in his resurrection that there's a whole lot of things that we're going to see. Turn to Romans chapter 6. That's where we kind of started our time. Romans 4.25 will say this. He was delivered over because of our transgressions or account of our transgressions, and he was raised on account of our justification. What does that mean? Chapter 6, there's a whole lot of theology that I wish I could tie into and help you understand, but chapter 6 is going to kind of do this, and that's our, our first thing as we start to think through this aspect. You have um, our identity in Christ. I, I think I somehow jumped a little bit here. 
Nope. So our identity in Christ, what is chapter 6 dealing with? Basically, it's this, is that through the death and resurrection of Christ, we have died to sin and are raised to newness of life. And that's a lot of interesting theological terms. And, and here's the, the point that Paul is actually going to draw out, is that you should actually know this as a believer, like these theological realities, theology is not just for the eggheads, it's not just for the professors, it's not just for those who are pastors, theology is for everyone, because it's the study of God, and it's the study of what he has accomplished, who he is, and who we are. And so when you start to look at Romans chapter 1, you, you see the emphasis here, do you not know, and the expectation is, you should, right? You guys awake? Okay, good, just check in. Do you not know? <laughs> I mean, how many times have we said that to somebody we expected a, yeah, oh yeah, I, I should know. Then what'd you do that for, right? Do you not know? Yeah, yeah, then pff, come on. Um, do you not know? And then, what do you see? Knowing this. And then another, knowing this. Verse 11, he's gonna say, consider. This is all, and again, here's, if you, if you take away something, take away this, is that what you think and what you know translates into what you do. Belief impacts behavior. Theology should impact your life. Like we just read Isaiah 53 and the depth of Isaiah 53 is amazing and it predicts what's going to happen to Christ even to the point of him being in a grave of a rich man 800 years prior. It's amazing. It's amazing in detail, but it has theological reality to it. And those theological realities are not just, yeah, yeah, I'm saved. Let me get on with my life until Jesus comes. And then, hey, pain-free. There's something in the middle. There's the here and now. And this is where Paul's going with it. And so here's some theological realities. You see, I have it color-coded for you. Because sometimes, you know, you got a wall of words up there. And what does that all mean? What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus has been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him, in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self is crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Um, if you're not kind of a you know, big wall of words kind of person, I, I've, I've done this for you. Our identity with Christ. The fact that we are in Christ, that salvation puts us in Christ, brings a couple things here. Baptized into Christ. What does that mean? It's, a, it's an emphasis on spiritual baptism. Spiritual realities. So when, when you guys do a baptism... You usually go to a pool because there's no baptistry here, right? You go to that pool for many years. It was at the Phillips house. 
And the person would get in the water. And the pastor would get in the water with them, usually with a funky looking hat and a mic tied to it. You guys remember. <laughs> and when that person goes under the water, a dove comes down and a bright light shines and angels sing. No, none of that happens. Why? Because there's nothing magical about baptism. The water doesn't glow. The person who's held under it. And so when I did baptism for college students here, uh, I would always joke with them and say, now, when I do it, I'm going to hold you under for a little bit. <laughs> because I want to show the physical reality of what baptism is supposed to represent. They're like, well, how long are you going to hold me under? Long enough for when you are released that you come up out of the water gasping for air. And they're like, uh, can I, Pastor Bob, baptize me? <laughs> nope. And so they would, some people would believe me because I have that intense straight face, even though half of the time I'm joking. And so, you know, when it would come, I'd have to reassure them, I'm not going to hold you under uh, for very long. And if you notice, Pastor Bob, he was so gracious, like he just barely touched and like you were supposed to go down and come. And I was a little bit more like, (laughs) why? Because baptism actually is an outward symbol of what has been accomplished by God spiritually. That you, when you're baptized, you are identifying with Christ, that you are now in Christ and all the benefits that come with Christ. And baptism actually shows two different aspects. Dead, symbolizing going under the water. Alive, coming up out of the water in newness of life. That's what baptism is all about. And that's really what Paul is pointing your attention to. We've been baptized into Christ. We've been buried with him, identified with his death. We've been raised with him. We're united with him. Notice all the withs. That's intentional. Again, identification. You're crucified with him. You've died with him. You also live with him. What is the point of all of that? What is he, what is he doing here? A couple things here. Our identity in Christ's death, verses 9 and 10. Knowing that, knowing what? That you're identified in Christ, you're baptized, buried, united, crucified, died, and live with him, knowing that, having been raised from the dead, Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. He has victory over it. He is the victor. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. And then you have the next portion here, that our identity in Christ's resurrection brings about specific aspects but the life he lives he lives to God even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus what is he saying here's the kind of the gist chapter 5 you're united with Adam in Adam's sin condemned under the domain and mastery of sin. You can read chapter 5 for yourself. That's what chapter 5 actually tells you. You're under the mastery of sin, identified in the first Adam. 
When you're identified in the second Adam, sin no longer has power over you. He has defeated, conquered sin. He is raised from the dead. He has victory over it. He is your new master. To walk in newness of life means you've died to the old self. And to give you a further clarification, I'll finish up with this. You're like, ooh, what's that? X marks the spot. That's a chi or key, depending on how you want to label it. It's a Greek letter. Here's the deal. Like, if you ever notice in your Bible, like, there's really not a lot of ways you could emphasize something in a first century as you, as you write. It was all capital letters, all on one parchment, no punctuation. Did you imagine reading all capital letters? It's like somebody who's angry on uh, social media. <laughs> but it's all run together, and you're like, I can't I figure that out. Because it costs money to send. I mean, it would cost several thousands of dollars just to send a letter because of all the things that came in. Because it's not like scrap paper or things like that. So they scrunched everything together. How do they emphasize? And I, I encourage my classes with this all the time. How do they emphasize? They emphasize by grammatical constructions. They don't have the highlighters like I do, the fancy transitions like I do in the PowerPoint. They have to emphasize by word order and sometimes the way that they arrange. And, and again, that's kind of getting it on the nerd level. But you need to understand that as one who reads your Bible, the way that Paul will emphasize, and we want to look at authorial intent, the way that Paul emphasizes is by structure. Why do I bring that out? To wow you? No. I want you to be amazed by scripture. And Paul has a point. He's just given you the theological realities that really, if you think about it, Romans 6 is an exposition of Isaiah 59 under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The one who suffered, died, was buried, raised again, we're united with that one. And that should change your life here and now. And so you have the call to action. That's a key. And what you have in verses 12 through 14 is a chiasm. Meaning this, the way that you would emphasize something in a number of ways, but this one in particular, is that you would have parallel lines. So it's kind of, it focuses on, and I have this fancy green thing here. It focuses on that part of the letter. What do I mean by that? You have one line here that's parallel to the bottom line. You have a second line that's parallel to the second line. And then you have something in the middle, and that's where the emphasis is. For instance, for your viewing pleasure, are you ready? Are you ready? Yes. Two of you are ready. All right. Do not let, thank you. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you would obey its lust. Like here's the call to action. This is the so what. what so what because of all these realities. So what for Easter? This is the so what. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. There's the center, but present yourselves to God as those who are alive from dead, the dead. And present your members as instruments of righteousness to God, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now, I could have just read that to you. I could have just given you some of the application, but I want you to see what you have in scripture is a chiasm because it's going to focus you right there into, in the center and why is that important? Notice the top and the bottom 
parallel. Don't let sin reign. Sin shall not be your master. And then the next two lines by, I think that's a brownish color. Don't present yourselves to sin. To be used as instruments of unrighteousness. In essence, don't go to sin as if you're still under it as a master. But what are you to do? There's the center part. But present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead. You're no longer your old self. You're no longer connected to the first Adam. You're no longer under the power and domain of sin. But present your members. This is the what. Present your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Well, what do I mean by that? And, and, and here's where we get to in this. Resurrection Sunday. It's amazing. Like, if you were to ask me my favorite holiday, it's Resurrection Sunday. I'm a little bit of a humbug. When Christmas comes around, stuff's like, hey, we should decorate. I'm like, yeah, you, you really should do that. Um, but I, but I, I help. Um, you know, it's like, what are we going to do for lights? Turn the porch light on. <laughs> Christmas, not really a big holiday for me. Easter, man. Christ has risen from the dead. Amen. Your sin if you are a believer and put faith in him, because it's not on you, he took our iniquity. He was crushed for our iniquity. He rendered himself as the only one that could pay back our sin and more. And he has conquered death. We have victory. There is no longer a sting because we will live with him. But Easter is a reminder that we have been raised to newness of life, that we are not to continue in sin. We're not to continue in the old ways. We're not to continue in all those things. We are, as this backup has said, don't let sin be your master. Why? Because if you're a believer in Christ, you have a new master. Don't present yourselves as instruments to sin. Why? Because that's been broken. If you're united in his death, sin has been dealt a blow. But you've been raised with him to walk in the new life that you have. I know but that is often not how we live. We don't live in light of, hey, this is who we are in Christ. That's why Paul actually makes the emphasis here to say this is how you are to live in light of these theological realities. That sin, as the writer of Hebrews, that so easily entangles you, take that before the Lord. The way in which you live your life should be newness of life. It's not just a happy day on baptism day. It's a happy day every day because you've been raised with Christ. 
That's one aspect that I think is often overlooked in the celebration of Resurrection Sunday. That's what's been on my heart. I'm not necessarily yelling at you, preaching to you. I'm actually dealing with my own heart, and that's what's been on my mind for the last several weeks as I've worked through what is Easter about and what should I be thinking through and being and spending time in Romans 6 has brought these things to remembrance. And so as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior who has paid our sin and who will come again and we will live with him forever, let us also live in light of the resurrection in the here and now, day to day, presenting ourselves to our master to do what is pleasing. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you just for the opportunity to gather together and read your word and be encouraged by it, to be amazed by it, to see how you have accomplished the things in which you predicted 800, almost 800 years prior. The things in which have significant theological realities, these, these things in which that if, if, if there is not a believer here today, they do not have these promises. That you have paid for our sin through the death of your son. That you were pleased to crush him. That, that his payment was more than our sin. That as the Puritan writer Richard Sibbs says there's more grace in God than sin in us. And, and you show that through the death of your son. That he was buried, but that the, the grave could not contain him. That he is victory over death. There's no longer a sting to death. That he is raised and we who believe are raised with him. And as we think through these theological and spiritual realities, Lord... May we also be invigorated to walk in the newness of life that we have, to walk in a way that is pleasing to our Lord, to our Savior, to our King who will return.